hey, have you enjoyed Romans? Been reading Romans? Been in Romans? Like, it's amazing to me that Paul could write all of those chapters of Romans in three complete sentences. That's it. You know, just run on sentence, master. We're doing this summer in the scriptures, and as a church, we're inviting the whole congregation to just grab one of those sheets that Jeff showed you earlier, and every day, some days it's six chapters, and some of them are pretty thick, like in Romans. But listen, if you are thinking, oh man, I didn't get going, or I'm way behind, I'm so far behind, forget it. We're trying to have fun with it. Jump in today. Read, just start with today's text and read as much as you can, and uh, then the next day, read the next day's text, read as much of it as you can. They're in the back. Yeah, they'll be in the back on the way out. Up there. On the way out. So just great, have fun with it. It's a great time. Brenda and I are in a house now where we have a deck that overlooks Novato. So we often will go out on the deck and sit out there and read our, our, our scriptures there. We're not completely all caught up. I've missed uh, days and times. and um, So just still enjoying it and getting blessed by our time in the Word. Well, speaking of Romans, I'm going to bring a message from Romans. The, the, these sermons on Sundays look back to the previous week's reading, and then the preacher has freedom to pick anything in that previous week's reading and plan a sermon around it. And I'm going to be in, Matt, by the way, Romans chapter 1, but we're not going to deal with the text that the junior hires giggle about, I don't think. One that stood out to me, Romans 1, 16, and I've entitled this message, Oh, the shame of it all. Salvatore Giacona is an artist that has uh, allowed us to use his works in the lobby to coincide with this message. And you have this theme of the doves, which represents spirit of Christ, presence of God, uh, and the releasing of the word of God. And in one of those paintings, if you want to visit it, and I encourage you to, it's in the northeast corner, that wall right back on the far wall, you'll notice that there is the architecture of Red Square, and then you have all the doves, but if you look closely, you recognize that they are bound up in a cage. They, are, they have been captured, and they are not going to be released. They're being restrained, restrained by the government or whatever powers. So you have this great, the picture of this great truth that brings peace and reconciliation, and hope, and healing, but it's being held back. It's not being allowed to become free and to touch people. And what that painting represents, Paul was experiencing, I think, as he launched his ministry and wrote this letter to the Romans and then wrote this letter uh, to the Roman believers and seekers. It's what he was experiencing in his day too. People were working against him, trying to restrain the message that he was bringing and doing everything possible to keep it from spreading. He had been stoned. He had been shipwrecked. He had had hardship. He had given up all sorts of prestige and power and position as a Jewish leader. In fact, a persecutor of Christian Jews. He has this powerful experience where God speaks to Paul and says, not why are you persecuting people who follow me, but God says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he is floored and he's blinded and he has this dramatic conversion and you see him getting all sorts of understanding and he comes and presents this message and he's being attacked for it. Resistance every place he goes to his message. 
And what's his response to all of that resistance? Well, his response is what we read in Romans chapter 1, and it's the focus of this message. He says, in fact, would you stand now for the reading of this section of Scripture? Romans 1. I'm going to read from verse 14 through 17. We're focusing on verse 16. Paul says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, which he means to be another way of saying the same thing. Greeks to the wise, non-Greeks the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation, that brings rescue to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. Go ahead and take your seats. And this is the fun I had with this study this week. I have heard that text, I am not ashamed of the gospel, that phrase, so many times I can't count them. I've been a Christian since 1978, 75, excuse me, and heard the Christian message ever since I was a kid. 75, I made a commitment to Christ, and, so, and I've been in church most of those Sundays. I think the time I missed church the most was the few years we were in seminary, uh, where we, I just needed to study, so uh, shame on me, but I was hearing this message over and over and over again, and I thought, I've never actually dug into that phrase, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I've always assumed that I knew what it meant. It always was very obvious. I sort of projected meaning on it through my assumptions, but won't it be fun to actually go there and peel back the layers and try to figure out what Paul meant by that? And that's what I did this week. And I asked the question, why would Paul feel inclined to write that? Where did that come from? What did he mean by it? Remember, we're talking about meaning, significance, and then response. We're looking at a text and saying, what's the meaning? There's one meaning. It's what the author meant by what the author said. And scholastically, uh, academically, we approach that and try to figure that out. But then we ask the question, how is that significant to me, that meaning, or to us? And we begin to find lasting principles, applications, and then response. What am I going to do with what I've just discovered? And that's really uh, specific to my context and my needs. What did he mean by that? And how is that statement a challenge to our lives today? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What's going on there? And I began to explore that question. And I'll share with you now some of what I feel I discovered. And here's how we're going to attack this idea of meaning this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the way Paul uses in other letters that he writes the same word here translated ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's that word that's translated ashamed. What's Paul's field of meaning? He wrote other letters and he used this word in other letters. And so we can look at the way he uses that word in other letters that he writes to try to get an idea for what he means by this word shame. Let me give you just some example of Word usage by Paul in some of his other letters. In 2 Timothy 1, the same Greek word is translated embarrassed. 
and it has a sense of embarrassment. In Isaiah 1, now Paul didn't write Isaiah, obviously, but there's a Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament translated into Greek and then given to Jewish folks who were dispersed all over the world. They still needed to read it. They no longer spoke Hebrew, could read Hebrew, so it was translated into Greek. And you have others looking at that uh, same word. In Isaiah 1.29, you have the idea of, of the shame idea with a sense of regret. So you get a sense for the broader field of use for that word. Back to Paul in Romans 5. It has the same word, has a sense of disappointment. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You have the idea of embarrassment and regret, disappointment. In 1 Corinthians 11, again, Pauline letter, you have the sense of disgrace. Same word translated disgrace. And then later on uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, same chapter, by the way, so verses 4 through 5, it's used for the sense of disgrace. Same chapter, not too many verses later, in verse 22, you have the idea of causing someone to feel inferior. Same word, translated all those different words. But my favorite is back in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, listen to this. Paul says, God used the simple things of this world to shame the allegedly wise of this world. God used the simple things. That's the word simple is a word from which we get our word moron. And he's being cynical here. God used the, the moronic things of this world to shame or embarrass or cause regret or disappoint uh, or, or, or disgrace, or show to be inferior, inferior, the allegedly wise of this world. Tongue-in-cheek, all over the statement. To give you some sense of the way Paul was using this word. And from that field of meaning, that f- the, the way Paul used it, we can get a little bit better understanding of what he means when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But why did he need to write about not being ashamed, whatever he meant by ashamed, in the first place? And that leads us to the second point under this idea of meaning. So we look at Paul's word usage. But we also want to look at the context. Context is everything in Scripture. If you have the choice when you're studying uh, Scripture, we have one of my, my friends, Charlie, is going to be going off to seminary here pretty soon. Uh, If you have to choose, you won't, but if you had to choose between learning original languages and learning how to discern context, learning how to discern the context of the letter is far more important. Context is everything. What's the context? Why is Paul writing this? Well, first of all, we know that people were slandering him. So he was speaking and teaching and writing, and then people were going ahead of him where they thought he might have influence because, remember, he was opposed all the time, even by followers of Christ who were less informed, less well-informed than him. And they were slandering him. Look at verse 1 in uh, chapter 1 and verse eight through, verses 8 through 15 in Romans. And you see... Paul responding to uh, what was obviously him being slandered. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. And God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness 
how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And part of the slander was this. People were going ahead of Paul. Some scholars are arguing this, and I think it makes sense. Going ahead of Paul and saying, you know, he hasn't visited you yet here in Rome. And the reason he hasn't visited you yet here in Rome is because he doesn't really care about you. And more importantly, even more specifically, Paul is not sure that his gospel of grace can hold water, will stand up to the power of Rome and the wisdom of the Greeks and the theological superiority of the Jewish folks in Rome. And now listen how Paul is, that's, that assumption is sort of embedded in his defense. In my prayers at all times, and I pray now that at last by God's will, I may be, uh, may be open, it, he'll open it up for me to come to you. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually in, uh, encouraged by each other's faith. So he's, I, I'm not afraid to come to you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I've been trying to come to you. I've been praying for you. I want to come there. And I want to come there because I'll give you something. But even more, I want to come there to be with you because I know I'll benefit from being with you. So that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to wise and foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. What's the context? Part of the context for Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And this is important for us understanding what he meant by that phrase. Part of the context is he was being slandered. Paul's enemies, probably Judaizers, folks who said, well, some version of, you can become a Christian, but you have to sort of be Jewish first. They were accusing him of being unwilling to go to Rome because he was afraid that the gospel just wouldn't hold up to better minds. Because understand this now, to the Greeks, the gospel was intellectual foolishness. It was just too simple to be of any consequence. And we'll look at what that gospel was in just a second. The good news. To the Romans, the gospel was weak, too peace-loving and passive to have a viable future. Remember, the Greeks are all into wisdom and philosophy, and, and they were intellectually superior. The Romans were into power, and they were in power at the time. How do you do anything with such a weak, almost seemingly passive message? And to the Roman Jews, the gospel was too easy. So it was intellectual foolishness to the Greeks. It was weak to the Romans. It was way too easy for the Roman Jews. It was too easy lacking ethic, they would say, and too easily accessed by just anybody. The accusation against what Paul preached was that he was preaching a message that required no change of lifestyle. Just pray, receive this message of Jesus, and you never have to do another thing. Go on with your life however you want it. That's what Paul's saying. Can we accept that? No, we can't accept that. It was a misrepresentation. He was being slandered. And Paul defends that uh, in his letter. People were not only misrepresenting Paul and his motives and 
assigning to him fear that he didn't really have. They were also misrepresenting his teaching. We know that that's going on. I don't have a slide for it, but in, in Romans chapter 3, uh, he references that. And it was in the middle of some other argument, but in the middle of that argument, Paul says, <clears throat> why not say as some slanderously claim that we say, so he's thinking about this, why not say as some slanderously say that we say, let us do evil that good may result. That's what people were obviously saying. He's, Paul, this Paul dude is so fixed on grace and the grace of God, and the more we do evil, practice evil, struggle, the more God loves us so much that the more we do evil, the more he responds with good and mercy. And people are saying that Paul then is going from that to arguing, so since our evil sort of catalyzes God's mercy, let's do more evil. Eat, drink, and be merry, because the more evil we practice, the more grace God pours out. The logic of it then is, the flawed logic of it then is, so do evil so that we have more mercy in the world. People were actually accusing Paul of teaching that, and he references that here. So what's the context for this phrase, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Misrepresentation of Paul, slandering him, and a misrepresentation of his teaching as grace, this gospel being something that failed to challenge people to live differently, part of the misrepresentation, and something that came at no cost because Paul emphasized the, the free gift of God is eternal life. So they're arguing this demands nothing for the favor of it, this gospel. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. This grace that God offers does not come at no cost. I mean, tell that to Jesus while he's on the cross gasping for his next breath. The problem with this is that it comes at no cost. And I can just see him <gasps> say, pardon me? It comes at great cost. The challenge is to align ourselves, ourselves with that cost. But they accused it of coming at no cost. It was just too easy. Their argument was then that we should have to earn forgiveness by our actions. And you could just hear them saying, how can God just offer forgiveness to those who have done so much wrong, who have broken so many dishes in life? How can he just come along and glibly say you're forgiven just because you say, please help me? A person should have to stop messing up for a given period of time before being worthy of forgiveness, shouldn't they? They might argue. In other words, you have to prove to be worthy of grace before receiving it. That was the argument. Based on this assumption, Paul's gospel was a shameful one, a valueless one, a lightweight gospel. It was just too easy to be worth anything. Maybe what resonated in the minds of these accusers, these assailants of the gospel, was something that we've grown up with. Hey, anything worth having is hard to get. So that's the context for his message. And Paul's answer to all of this in Romans 1. Nope. You might think that that's a shameful gospel, a worthless gospel, a message too easy, not worth trying to attain, that demands nothing 
but I'm not ashamed to deliver this message. In fact, to the contrary, and some uh, scholars, and I think with, with good reason, say that actually the more appropriate translation, the force of the statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is actually the English equivalent is more like, I'm proud of the gospel. I'm proud to present this thing that looks so weak. I'm proud of it, for it's the only message that rescues people. Paul was so proud of it that he leaks it out early, interrupting his traditional introduction in Romans chapter 1. He can't even wait. It's like there's a traditional introduction. Paul, an apostle, la, 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 to the, to the saints and whatever in Roman, and then he would get on to his point. But look, go back to Romans 1. He says, I thank uh, uh, go back to Romans uh, 1 1. He says, A servant of Jesus Christ called, and then he, he, that's as far as he gets in his introduction. He's so proud of this gospel. And then he sort of stuffs it in there. He can't even wait to get down in the letter. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scripture regarding his son, who is, as, this is the introduction still, at the earthly life was ascended of David and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God and power of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through him will receive grace and apostleship. Call the Gentiles the obedience. I'm so excited. Oh yeah, my introduction. Then he gets back. In verse 7, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace, peace from our God and Father, from our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel. Not ashamed of it. The gospel, it confounds the educated and educates the confounded. It humbles the powerful and empowers the humble. This good news of grace. It reorients the rich and enriches the disoriented. No wonder Paul was so proud to preach it. It's good news. It's gospel. The idea that humanity is lost and wandering and broken. And come on, can we get real? Haven't we proven that that's true in some way? Or does our perfect world with no war and no hatred and no racism and no distance and no broken relationships and perfect parents and perfect children and justice for all nations and all ethnicities, does our perfect world, because we have all that right, prove that we're not broken and lost? The more I live just being unguarded art, the more I prove we are broken and lost and in need of someone to rescue us and help us to implement our very best intentions and hopes. The more I live with no power to be the man I long to be in my dreams, the more I prove that we're broken and lost and in need of a rescuer, a battery of some sorts for our souls. How I long to be that and there's so much difference between the that I long to be and the this that I am. Oh God, we need someone to rescue us. And Paul says that someone is Jesus Christ who came and lived the life we were always intended to live. That's kind of encouraging, isn't it? You look at the life of Christ and you think, man, what a magnificent specimen. Did you know that life is the life God intended for us at creation? And that life with those values and that perfect love for people 
that perfect, unflawed, uninterrupted relationship with our Creator is what God wants to empower in us. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God, that way with God leading you, that's right there for the taking. Take it. The good news is that our brokenness, our distance from God, our, the old school word is sin, is forgiven. Forgiven. Because Jesus died, took on all of that sin. And then better than that, he was put in the grave and rose again, and he spit in the face of death. And then he steps back and says, you want that gift, what I just lived and did? Here, take it. That's the gospel. Becoming a Christian, receiving the gospel, is about saying, yes, I want that. Really? I can have that? And our son-in-law became a Christian right here in this room. Well, the old room. It used to have a wall. He said in a conversation with me right out in our parking lot, I grew up Buddhist, and we, we treat people well, and they do. A lot of good uh, in any world religion. But he said, what I can't get over with what you're teaching there is that my sins can just be forgiven? They're just taken away? I said, yeah, that's gospel. That's good news. What's the significance of that? Well, here are some things that stood out to me. Christianity, in reading this whole thing that Paul's writing, Christianity is a religion of dying, serving, and giving. Listen now. Christianity is a religion of dying, serving, and giving, not prestige, superiority, and acquisition. We have turned Christianity, Americans at least have, into a religion of prestige, superiority, and acquisition. We have so changed the Christian message and Christian normal that were Jesus to show up here today, he might not even recognize the religion he started. Do you hear? It's a faith of dying to ourselves, serving people, and giving all that we have. Beware of attempts to adjust the gospel of humble, significant, strategic sacrifice to a more palatable gospel of power, usually political power, position, i.e. personal recognition, and personal gain. Beware, that's not the gospel. The adjustment to something more palatable is what people were challenging Paul to do. But he recognized that the faith was a faith of dying, serving, and giving. A free gift from God. Therefore the taking and receiving. And he says, I'm not ashamed of that message. And you're aware, right? To be an American Christian, you kind of have to attach yourself to something that doesn't fit America. And still say, I'm not ashamed of it. Because the rest is lies. This is truth. And it gives life. That's one part of the significance. Second, always value people over comfort. We are tempted to value comfort over people. 
I want to care for you, but only to a point where it doesn't affect my level of comfort. Paul talked about making sacrifices to bring the good gift, the free gift of Christ to people. There's no such thing as true Christianity that doesn't hurt a bit. There's no such thing. That's pseudo-Christianity. No, it's wonderful. It's life-giving to follow Jesus. It's exciting, man. I mean, it's purposeful. It matters. I wouldn't trade it for anything. But every once in a while, it skins my knees and breaks my nose. To be faithful is painful sometimes. To value people above my own comfort, that's painful sometimes. And it's the most life-giving, dynamic, empowering discomfort you'll ever experience, ever. Appearing to be weak and out of step is worth it. If it results in needy, broken people finding hope and life in Christ. Value people over comfort. Third and last one. The news is so good, this good news, because it's so radically countercultural. It's always been radically countercultural. No matter which culture it's in, it's going to be radically countercultural until that day when there's no difference between our culture and the culture of Christ. This good news is about forgiveness, it's about grace. And God's the one offering the grace to everyone, to everyone. No matter their stage in life. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Listen to this. These are all delineations of the good news. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known, made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given. Listen to this. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So the rightness, the position, the, the, the perfection in a sense of God is laid off onto us when we believe the teachings of Christ and receive him, make ourselves apprentices of his life. So there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For, and remember, he's talking in large part, the first whole, seems like the first half of Romans is talking about, is arguing for there being no difference between Jew and Gentile. You think you're in because, you're a, because of your Jewish ethnicity? And Paul's arguing against that. All have sinned and fall short of the standard, the glory of God. And all are justified freely by what? His grace. Grace, that free and undeserved gift. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's one of the things pictured, by the way, in an infant baptism. Some of you probably don't even agree that we do that, but we do it. And I love this. When the infant is taken from his or her parents, and the phrase I use is thumb still turned in, completely unaware of what's going on, carried to a baptismal font that represents the grace of God, not able to walk there, him or herself, carried by parents who have faith, and then by a pastor, waters poured on to identify that child with the community of faith. It's called prevenient grace, grace ahead of time. We all receive prevenient grace. While we were unaware, Jesus was losing his breath over us. Listen, today when we're unaware, 
God knows how to disagree with a choice and still passionately love and lose his breath over the person making the choice. And that's what this good news is. While we're powerless, Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his superior love for us in this, that while we were still practicing sin, Christ died for us. He looked and said, that one that's messing up everything she does, I'm dying for her. Hope one day she'll recognize that and come to me. That's the gospel. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation. And I link that with another non-Roman, not the book of Romans, but another Pauline letter, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, embedded in the work of Christ, this is good news, they are a new creation. A new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. The news is good because it's so radically countercultural. It's about forgiveness. You know, the artist and, and band get ready to come on up because we're going to receive our offering in just a second. The artist Salvatore Giacona, who's been worshiping with us recently, become a great friend. If you ever get invited to his house for, his house for dinner, cancel the rest of your plans and go. It's going to be a good meal. He tells me that in that piece that I referred to earlier, if you look closely, all those doves that are caged, he says there's one dove that's breaking through the cage. Now, I haven't found it yet. And actually, he painted that thing, I don't know how many decades ago. He said, I don't remember where I put it, but I remember that there's one in there. That's the gospel. The gospel, it's a meal that can nourish the hungry and give strength to wobbly legs. And part of our response to it is to ask ourselves the question, I'm a follower of Jesus. Am I serving that meal? The gospel, it's a ship of hope looking for a place to dock. And part of our response is this. Am I willing to make space for that and allow it to dock here in my heart and receive it? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would receive him would become a child of God and have abundant life forever. He so loved the world that he made a way for people to be free again, for humanity to flourish again, for doves to fly again. And that way he made is the gospel. The fact that through faith and alignment with Jesus, we can be reconciled to our creator, our father. Who in their right mind could ever be ashamed of that.